Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, it's Kaveh from the House of Pod. I just wanted to let you know I had a totally different show planned for this week, but then this preprint publication came out last week showing that there was this possible evidence that vaccinating uh, kids actually was more dangerous than the COVID itself uh, because of post-vaccine myocarditis, and it raised a lot of questions um, it raised a lot of questions about the use of VARES. I'll explain what that is in, in the show. And also the risks and benefits of uh, preprint publication. So I, I felt it had to be addressed. And I think the sooner we address it, the better. I don't think we can, as a medical community, sit on this topic. I think we have to get out in front of it and discuss it. So uh, a little change of plans, but I got two great guests we have Dr. Ryan Marino, toxicologist that you all know and love. He's been on the show a billion times. And we also have Dr. Dan Friedman. He's a pediatric neurologist. And he recently wrote a blog regarding this preprint publication that I mentioned, um, really analyzing it and the use of VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, and how it can be used and how it shouldn't be used. So stay tuned. It's a great episode. You're really going to like it. If you haven't already, please follow us at Twitter at the House of Pod. And if you haven't, rate and review us at iTunes. I'm Kave, and I'm joined today by two very important guests. I have Dr. Ryan Marino. He is an ER physician and a toxicologist in Cleveland. And for the first time on the show, we have Dr. Dan Friedman, a pediatric neurologist in Austin. So you probably know a thing or two about grifters from living in Austin, the, the land of Wakefield. And uh, let's see, who else? There's some other people. Oh, uh, Joe, Rogan. Joe Rogan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get to those guys. Uh, but first, let me just start. Thank you guys both for being on the show. It's really exciting to have you guys both here at the same time. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's great to be back. Uh, how are you guys doing? You guys holding up okay? Yeah, doing pretty as well. As good, good as anyone can. Real convincing, Dan. Real convincing. <laughs> it was... <laughs> oh Pandemic, God. you got to you know, take with a grain of salt. But doing, yeah, as good as anyone can. I like that. All right. I was uh, talking to these guys before the show uh, started about how jealous I am of their beards. They both have these like beautiful beards and I want one. I can't because it's too hard with what I do for, you know, with my mask and stuff I have to wear for procedures, but God, they look great. Um, the one thing I'll say is this, my beard isn't as cute as yours is. You guys have like cute beards and they're like, they're under control. And they're like down here, lower to the chin. Like mine is like goes up all the way to like my eyes and like, not like yours. Yours guys, it seems like yours is easy to control. Am I right? I, I feel like it's easy for you guys to control your beard. Well, you, you got to trim it a little bit. You can't just let it grow out of control. So oh, yeah. you know, you contain it. Yeah, but then there's, there's like the why have a beard then, you know, like isn't the, isn't that the point just because to let it You don't have to in? shave every day yeah exactly yeah trimming well, once a week is way better than shaving every day guaranteed. yeah well i have to shave like three times a day but that's neither here nor there um so today we have a lot to discuss and there's a there's 
I want to talk about what a preprint publication is. We want to talk about VARES. We want to talk about a lot of stuff, but we should probably start with some very basic bits of misinformation that we still hear. You know, over a year into this pandemic, there's some stuff that we're still hearing. And we've had the, the vaccine for a while now, and it's a big source of contention still when it kind of shocks me that it is. I don't know why. So let's start with that. Uh, let's start with what you guys, if there was one piece of misinformation just about the vaccine itself, what would you guys say it is? Ryan, why don't we start with you? Well, so I think a lot of people have questions about these vaccines are kind of a new technology to make it to market, and they have made it to market in a much shorter time than it is kind of standard for vaccines. Um, but the, the questions that people have can be easily answered. So these vaccines use something called mRNA, which is messenger RNA. It does not change your DNA. It has no effect on that. The human body cannot use mRNA to change your genes in any way. This is a, a technology that has been studied for at least 30 years in humans um, for the intention of vaccinating people and creating immunizations. And we're probably going to see a lot more of this in the next few years, especially for things like influenza, HIV, and a lot of other things where this is going to make a huge difference in kind of the way that medicine functions on a day-to-day basis. Um, but the other thing is that these vaccines were able to come to market so quickly, not only because we had a global pandemic where every country, every scientist in the world was focused on kind of trying to stop, stop what was going on and save lives. Um, and so more resources than are usually available were available. And this isn't just humans. This isn't just kind of scientific technology. This is money. This is governments. This is kind of a lot of stuff happened a lot, a lot quicker and more easily. But this was only possible because the, this technology has been studied for 30 years in humans. It's known to be safe. It was very easy. And so for Pfizer, which is FDA approved for adults in the United States, um, and Moderna, which are the two mRNA vaccines that we have, they both just code for the spike protein and they use the same uh, DNA from the virus. They both use a little bit of different sequencing, um, but it's essentially the same, same result here at the end of the day. And so they code for one protein that the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 virus has. Um, and so your body is able to make antibodies and recognize this protein that is only gonna come from this coronavirus. Um, and so the thing that I think people are overlooking in, in the questions they're asking is how could a vaccine that codes for the genetic makeup of one protein in this virus ever be worse than the entirety of the virus? All of its proteins, all of its infectious capability. Um, that's something that no one, ever seems to be asking. And so if we can answer kind of those basic questions, we get to kind of the point where that's why vaccines are safe. That's why vaccines are effective. And it's not just me saying that based on these ideas, that's also based on kind of like tens of thousands of people in the trials, as well as now hundreds of millions of people around the world who have received these vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. That's, you know, of all like the vaccine hesitancy reasons, the, the speed of it, coming out so quickly is the one I actually like the most because I feel like that's one we can address. You know, I feel like that's one you can talk people down from. If people are going to say that they're going to get into things like, you know, microchips and that sort of thing, it's hard. That's a hard, it's a hard place to start a conversation from that just takes a lot of deprogramming really. And to deprogram somebody, it's you got to turn off their microchip. You got to, <laughs> first thing you got to do, and it takes a big emotional investment. That's not something you can scale easily. It's really hard to do, you know? So that's the one argument I like. Dan, what, what do you think? Are you running across this problem too? I mean, at this yeah. point, what reasons are you hearing for people being vaccine hesitant and, and, and how are you addressing it? One of the biggest ones I, I encounter is whether it's from like concerned parents about their teenagers or a lot, a lot of healthcare workers, like younger healthcare workers, I often hear the concern about infertility and sterility. And so, and one of the things I try to help people understand is that 
this has been the anti-vax talking point for so long. Every vaccine, they've tried to link to infertility and sterility, and they've always failed, right? So they did this when Gardasil came out for HPV. And, and you know, once they make the claim, of course, it takes years to get all the data to show, no, this is a totally bogus claim. And then we have that data and we say, look, we've studied this exhaustively. It does not cause infertility, but they still make that claim. It doesn't change, right? Yeah, you know, right. I brought up Wakefield earlier. Uh, Wakefield, Del Bigtree, all those guys are still going on about this stuff. And they immediately just like, I'm sure they just like control F and found and replaced all the Gardasil in their documents and replaced it with <laughs> Moderna or something like that. You know, it's like, it's absolutely ridiculous how easily they just transform this argument to uh, to apply to the mRNA vaccines. And so, yeah, it's all, all nonsense. I try to reassure people. I point to like the people who got pregnant in the trial. So there are people that uh, were in the Pfizer study and the Moderna study that got pregnant during the course of the trial. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. now we know with, you know, I think it was over 30,000 healthcare workers that got the vaccine early on that they were able to have. Uh, you know, pregnancies without complications, they were able to get pregnant, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I just try to reassure people that people lie, mix stuff up, and we have to spend forever debunking it. And it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad Dan is here, not only to offer the perspective of a someone who specializes in pediatrics, which is very sorely lacking from the discussion that we're going to have tonight. Um, but also just in talking about these vaccines, like from my perspective as a toxicologist, the ingredients in every vaccine that's available on the market are not toxic to humans. Um, and these new mRNA vaccines have even less components that would even make me concerned. Yeah. So let's, let's get into some of, I think this is going to tie in to the discussion we're going to have here. It's, it's going to need to start though, with a discussion of what it means to be a preprint publication, what a preprint publication is. So for listeners who don't know, most research goes through some sort of process to get published. There's some peer review where someone looks through it, that analyzes what you've done to make sure it's done in sort of a reasonable way. They give you feedback. You go back, you change the paper. Sometimes this is a lengthy process. Sometimes it, it can take months to years to get it done, but that's how you get high quality research. Now, uh, that, that, do you guys think that's a fair assessment of what it means to be a preprint publication? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why we're talking about tonight is recently in the last months, years, really, um, preprint publications have uh, shown us that there can be some problems with it. There's some good, there's some bad with it. And I want to discuss that with you guys first. Let's first talk about the risks and the benefits of preprint publications. We'll get into why we're having this discussion in a little bit, why this is in the news again. Um, but let's talk about the risks and the benefits. Dan, what are the, in your mind, the risks and the benefits of preprint publications? So my understanding of this issue is that before medicine started doing preprint publications, we kind of stole the idea from like the biologists and the physicists and people that were doing this and other like sciences, but not, you know, medical science. And, and so they, they've had these servers for a lot longer. They've been very beneficial to scientists doing the research because it's like, you get like a little bit of peer review before you do the real peer review. And so it can help you find, you know, ways to better your paper and get into the right journal and all that stuff. So I see advantages to that. I really do. I think the problem with it is when, you know, you mess up a physics paper or a biology paper, you're not talking about affecting, you know, policy and people's lives and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh, and actual treatments that people are going to be taking that could cause harm. And so, so I think we there are, the stakes are a lot higher for medicine. And because of that, we need rules in place. And in theory, these rules do exist. I just don't know how enforceable they are. So preprint servers, um, you know, say like you should really be doing this in good faith to say like, hey, I need to find a place for this paper and get some feedback on it. It should not be a place for articles that have already been rejected from a bunch of places because so if you already know your, your paper is in trouble and you've got the peer review and it was mm -hmm. negative peer review, you can't then just turn around and be like, oh, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, let me, <laughs> I need, I need some free help for this paper, basically. That's not what it should be for, right? And that's how right. bad papers get out there, get press, and and people don't realize so this is a non-peer reviewed paper that's probably got negative peer review you know, feedback. And, and then they just kind of ignored that and took it somewhere else. And so, so I feel like there's a major, major downside to people that 
uh, misuse the process. And so I think we have to be very diligent and careful in how, how we go about this. I'm mostly pretty skeptical of preprints, but in fairness, my field is a very slow field. Neurology is a you know, very thinking slow, like no, no big breakthroughs are gonna come through in the matter of weeks to months. We do stuff over years. And so nothing that I can think of would be like, oh, we need to get this out right away to, to change policy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I hear I, I can see some of the benefit. I mean, I, I can see how if you have an idea for something and you want to take credit for it as soon as possible, you get it out there. You can like lay claim to something really quickly. I could see how you could maybe get some collaboration with other people interested in studying the same thing. You could I see the benefits in that. But Ryan, what do you see as the the risks of these of of preprint publications? So the peer, the peer review process exists for exactly this reason. Um, anyone who's taken like mathematics classes, statistics classes, you can kind of manipulate numbers into saying whatever you want. You can kind of force data to, to do whatever you want if you have the motivation to do so. Um, and so the, the peer review process is supposed to take kind of like uncertainty um, and bias out of the scientific method. And I think it's that bias that is really the problem. I have this great newspaper article that I love to give trainees who rotate with me um, that says that eating chicken hearts treats snake envenomation. And it's like a hundred years old. Totally but, true, uh, this, totally this was true. published. And yeah, it says that because someone did this, you just need to eat a bunch of chicken hearts and your snake envenomation will be treated. But by the way, kind of quick, quick aside, chicken hearts are delicious. Have you guys had one? <laughs> no, I've never had one. That's oh, they're, they're <laughs> so tasty. That? <laughs> you, listen, Americans have such a hard time with like visceral organs eating them, but that's where all the umami is, man. That's where all the flavor is. And that cardiac muscle, it's delicious. Sorry, it's an aside. Go on, Ryan. <laughs> Carry on. Sorry. <laughs> Um, and so the, the preprints kind of were not a thing before COVID. Um, there's one great example. I mean, I can bring up that that's unrelated to COVID is I'm sure many people who are listening have heard of this quote unquote moral hazard of naloxone or Narcan. And this was another non peer reviewed paper, um, that was put on a server several years ago under the kind of pretenses that it would take too long to get published people should know that Narcan was really bad. It was like making people use more drugs and it was totally untrue, but the damage was already done. This was in like the Washington Post, um, Forbes, Buzzfeed, like all, all of the big sites had already pushed this out. This has never made it through peer review now in almost four years. Um, but during COVID, when we're kind of in a crunch situation where this global pandemic is literally killing hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people um, wanting to kind of share information rather than going through this slow peer review process because the peer review process can take weeks to months, um, getting information out. If there's like an effective therapeutic, if there's something that's hurting people, there's something that's helping people, letting people know about it was kind of important. And so a lot of these preprint servers kind of gained a new significance. Um, and like Dan said, the original intent was to get feedback more than anything, uh, not to just kind of like put put ideas out into the world that people would then emulate. But we're kind of now in this post-COVID world where you can just put put whatever you want onto a preprint server uh, and hope hope that it sticks. And some people take advantage of that. Some people use it for, for the right reasons. Some people solicit feedback and then submit through the peer review process. Some people share good findings. And other people seem to be using it in kind of bad faith to just get publicity for their own conclusions that are not, not evidence-based. Um, yeah, I just wanna add that also, I mean, I really enjoy being a peer reviewer. So I think there's been a like antagonistic approach towards peer review for some reason, but like peer reviewing can be really enlightening. Like I learned a lot of really interesting stuff by, by doing it. Um, I have to obviously investigate statistical methods and think about that and be like, oh, is this the appropriate test for, that these people use? Uh, and then because of that, when you explore those things, you when you come across a bad paper, you're like, oh, this is a really bad paper. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you know that, and you know that these the people that wrote this paper are gonna keep seeking, you know, maybe eventually they'll find a journal, like an open access journal or something, 
but more than likely they're gonna have a hard time finding a home for this paper. And so preprint seems like they, it, it's like a way to cheat around the peer review process. Like there, there is rigor and uh, you know, it does take time for a reason because dedicated peer, peer reviewers wanna review that. They are people yeah. that are, should be experts in that material and they can go through it and dissect it and you know, criticize it and give positive feedback as well. And make it a better paper overall. Yeah, yeah. no, that's okay. yeah. I agree. I think the review process, like I learn from reviewing papers, but I see a lot of stuff that I'm like, oh my god, this should never see the light of day. This is horribly uninformed. These people who start from the totally wrong place are going to get to the wrong conclusions, no matter what they do. So that's another important part of the peer review process. You can't change the way everyone thinks. You can't change everyone's motivations and their biases. Um, and so those people maybe shouldn't, shouldn't end up in print. Yeah. Yeah. The, we had a guest a while back, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. She is a pediatrician over in Detroit and she's the one who helped blow the lid off the whole, the Flint water Flint, crisis. Yeah. And, you know, she took her stuff basically straight to the press. Um, didn't want to waste time going through publication. Um, I could see why that needed to be done. It was an urgent thing. It needed to be dealt with immediately um, it wasn't peer reviewed, her data, of course, um, which is, you can, you can criticize for that. But at the same time, you know, where she was coming from was she, she had to get it out there early as soon as possible to get things going. I understand that. Problem is, I think in this day and age, in our current society, the way things travel through social media, the way things, how quickly things can travel. I mean, I know this joke is a bit hacking been done, but the only thing that travels faster than COVID is misinformation at this point it it spreads so quickly so i have a hard time with it and there's some real problems like one of the things we saw earlier back in november last year there was that paper that came out about ivermectin in egypt bad paper preprint publication lots of questions about it lots of people had questions about it in I mean, questions about whether or not it was even real, whether the data was real, didn't make sense. Numbers internally didn't make sense. The, it, was a, it was an awful paper. And if it had any chance to be reviewed by any article, by any journal, I mean, it would have been picked apart pretty quickly. But it didn't matter because that worked its way. That preprint publication worked its way into like meta-analyses and worked its way into the media. And it took hold. And it's still part of the problem to this day. I mean, there's lots of players in that Invermectin deal I recommend listening to the Behind the Bastards two-parter episode on the ivermectin issue. Uh, it's really informed, but like, it's clear that misinformation these days can can really take hold. So that's that's where I want to transition next. I want to talk about this recent article. There's a recent preprint that came out called SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccination associated myocarditis in children ages 12 to 17. So. Before we jump into this, though, yeah. I just want to give quick context. So the Egypt paper that you're referencing was a preprint released on a preprint server, no review um, in November of 2020. Before it was retracted, uh, I think early this year, it had been shared over 150,000 times. It was included in 30 meta-analyses. Um, I mean, Jesus. the damage was already done. Like, There's no way you can undo that. Uh, and I mean, even their their most basic conclusion was saying that it had a 90% reduction in mortality, which there is no medication, no drug, no therapeutic available in modern medicine that is that effective. So it's kind of crazy that this even started in the first place, but this was picked apart by students who were kind of researching ivermectin and COVID-19 research. Um, and this was just like by happenstance and in people's free time that this was noticed, but this was shared around the world. I mean, governments in Central and South America instituted ivermectin into kind of national programs based on this study. Um, so I really yeah. can't emphasize how much damage, damage happened before this was retracted. Yeah, And no. th that's a good context for this new preprint, which hopefully Dan can tell us about. Basically, the, the premise of this preprint was that uh, young boys in particular have more risk from the vaccine than they do from COVID. That's what this preprint publication did. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how they decided that, how they came to that conclusion? 
Um, so this goes back to a meeting of the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Uh, I think it was at the end of June. And they had this big meeting where they talked about uh, myocarditis as a side effect um, in young adults and young uh, and adolescents uh, from the vaccines. So they have this really nice data that showed that yes, there is a risk of myocarditis, but that risk is outweighed by the benefit of sparing hospitalizations and some rare deaths in children. Um, so it seemed pretty clear that the vaccine was better than the disease. These authors kind of wanted to challenge that assertion. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that premise in and of itself. But the way they did that is they wanted to repeat the ACIP's analysis by taking the probable cases of myocarditis that are in this database called the BEARS database, database for short, or Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Oh, that's well um, done, so, by the way, right off the dome with that. <laughs> well done. So BEARS has been around for a long time, started in 1990. Uh, this is over 30 years old. We use it to track all different vaccine adverse events. Uh, with the COVID vaccines, the reports have really skyrocketed because there's so much media attention to new vaccines. We got to report every little symptom. I filed a report for a patient. Like it's just one of those things that, like, you know, if you if you don't know, you're encouraged to report. And so this is not a yes, I'm proving the vaccine caused this side effect. It's just my patient may have had a side effect from this vaccine. I want people to know about it. And so, and the CDC has a team of people that go through these reports and they adjudicate them and then they bring them to the ACIP and then they do this uh, data analysis. So one, one quick question here. Yeah. So just for context for VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, what are the kind of things that people can report though? Like, is there any limit on that? Or There's has no anyone ever so reported that a vaccine turned them into the Hulk? Yes. So that's a classic, classic story. And it's one of the it's one of the great you know uh, kind of exposés of VAERS. And so VAERS has a lot of uses. It's a really cool database. I've looked at so many cases from there. I don't know why this is what I do in my free time, but it is what I do. And so it's just one of those things that like it fascinates me that we have this really cool reporting system. And it's very in the, in the context of all of our reporting systems across the country. So we have multiple systems in place. VAERS is just one of those systems, right? And so we have all these checks and balances to monitor vaccine safety. Uh, I, honestly, in my opinion, we probably have the most robust system in the world to monitor vaccine safety. Um, and so VAERS is a small piece of that puzzle, but a really important one. Anyone can report to VAERS. So that could be the physician, that could be the, uh, the patient themselves, anyone can file a report. And so there's this really famous anecdote from, I think it was like 10, 20 years ago, uh, but a doctor put in a report of the flu vaccine, turning them into the Incredible Hulk, just to see if they would take it. And they do. Uh, and so some poor bear staffer, you know, was like, hey, I don't know that this makes sense. But uh, and so well, it's one of those what did he what what did he like say? Was he like uh, and then after the vaccine, my skin turned green. I grew to uh, size three times that of my normal and my rage. Did, how do you, yeah, do you know, know. Any details? As I got angrier, I got stronger. And so, <laughs> I gotta read this. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have to go back. I read it a long time ago, but I have to go back and reread it because it's one of those like, and, and someone preserved it. So it got deleted from the site eventually. And right. they realized it was a bogus report, but they, uh, someone preserved it. You know, it's, it's right. the uh, uh, memory hole of the internet. You can always find something, right? And so, yeah. um, so we, we got that backed up somewhere, but it's, it's, it's a very flawed system. You have to know its flaws but it's still important because when a real signal is there, you see it. And so we saw this back in the 90s with the first rotavirus vaccine. Um, so the first rotavirus vaccine had a serious complication of intussusception uh, or like a telescoping of the bowel, so you had bowel obstruction. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it was something that could not have been picked up in the clinical trial because the clinical trial had a few thousand people and this was like a one in 10,000 or so uh, results, but it was picked up through VAERS because a couple of clinicians said, hey, my kid just got this vaccine and now they have this you know, reaction. And sure enough, we pulled it within nine months, I think we pulled the vaccine off the market. So VAERS is very useful for that signal detection. That's what it does. What it's not so useful for, and it says this very explicitly on the website, is do not try to estimate incidents based on VAERS data because the system is so problematic. You have incomplete reports, you've got, it's kind of like a game of telephone. So like, 
you get these little fragments of data. And when you want more data, you know, you want to know, does this patient have myocarditis? You don't get any of the information you need to actually determine if that patient has myocarditis. And so particularly from an outsider, because you don't have, you know, which are the, you know, adjudicated confirmed reports, all you have is, oh, these are, this is what I can download off the website. Um, it can be a very tricky thing to try to repeat your own analysis of it. And that's what these authors did, is they tried to redo the ACIP analysis. They did it in such a way, though, that, I mean, they really deviated from the criteria they set forth to begin with. And so that, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think, I hope at least, that a lot of these cases were just truly accidental. Someone didn't review them as thoroughly. Uh, but clearly, there are cases that were missed in their review, or however you want to explain it, that they did not adhere to the same criteria. So they got a much bigger number, I shouldn't say much bigger, but they got a bigger number yeah. um, and calculated a higher incidence than the ACIP did. And so now the headlines are six times higher risk of you know, getting myocarditis from the vaccine than being hospitalized. And that's just not true. You can't determine that from this data. And so right. it's a completely bogus headline in a bogus study. One of the important things here is that VAERS, while very important, I mean, not to, like there are these cases where someone reports they turned into the Incredible Hulk. There's someone who 45 days after their vaccine jumped into a well and that's been reported. Um, those kind of things aside, this is a very important system to identify kind of like these rare signals and do more investigation. And that's why it exists. That's why the CDC uses it. That's why this is ongoing. Um, and so the no matter what kind of like anti-vaxxers want to do, these signals will be detected and, and weeded out appropriately. But in terms of kind of epidemiologic research, and for people who aren't familiar with epidemiology, which I, I'm no epidemiologist myself, but uh, databases like VAERS are just not appropriate. And so VAERS, I mean, literally has a disclaimer, as Dan said, that this is not appropriate for making these kind of determinations. Um, and, and so that's kind of the big takeaway for me is that, I mean, even from like a starting perspective, this was not the way to do a study to begin with. There are a lot of other issues too, but if you start on the wrong foot, like you're not, you're not going to go anywhere productive. And I am worried about what we're seeing already. You know, it got picked up and reported on in the guardian who presumably has a decent science editor, you know, and still made it through. And then that was then tweeted out by Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the politician with the Jewish space lasers, like, and that is out there now. Uh, the one thing I'm hopeful about, you guys tell me if I'm wrong about this, is that um, I feel like this time, as opposed to that, that Egypt study, which kind of went under the radar for long enough before it became a problem, this was jumped on right away. Like, I feel like experts, pediatric cardiologists right away started looking at it. People like Dan, yourself, and uh, Dr. Gorski, they started writing about it. And I feel like it's being a, a, a approached, at least. Do you guys feel like this is our only option? This is what we have to do? We just have to be like on top of it every time? We need to have medical experts in every field constantly watching for preprints coming out and analyzing them, reading them, making sure they're they're legitimate before they go viral. What do we do here? Well, the anti-science movement and I mean, kind of like just contrarianism in general have definitely weaponized social media over at least the last 20 years. I mean, the, the internet and, and other things may not have been around before that. Um, but if they're able to use it to kind of weaponize and perpetuate their beliefs, which has been extremely effective, as we can see in the United States, where we can't get a good vaccination uptake um, because because of this anti-science movement, then I think it's kind of on the onus of people who are pro-science or have kind of scientific expertise to also be there and kind of counter these arguments. I think for this study, unfortunately, the cat's kind of already out of the bag, right? So even if the study goes away completely, never gets into a journal, then it'll become a conspiracy theory that pharma is suppressing this, you know, study because it's exposing or something. It's, no, this is just a bad study. That's all it comes down to. Uh, and so I was kind of optimistic when I started, I talked to a few of the authors in the paper uh, through social media, and I was optimistic at first that 
and maybe I guess I still am optimistic that maybe they will take some constructive feedback of this paper, uh, hopefully do a completely different paper. Uh, I mean, you, they could use the data from their paper, but compare it to something like the vaccine safety data link, which is designed for this type of analysis. And mm -hmm. so you could actually request that data, request that data, any researcher can do that. Um, and so they could get more robust data than what they're using right now and make a much better paper out of this, right? So like as a researcher, that's what you would want to do. So I'm optimistic that could still happen. Um, but I was very surprised kind of Ryan's point earlier about contrarianism, a lot of kind of either self-identified or, or I don't know what, how they identify themselves, but a lot of contrarian voices on Twitter, like we're circling the wagons around this paper, acting like it was, you know, this great piece of scholarship or something. And that's just so shocking to me that people would pretend that when anybody can read the disclaimer on the website saying, don't use the data this way. Yeah. And then also just see that their data wasn't even valid. They didn't but, adhere to their own criteria. I mean, that's a pretty big point when you're doing a, a study of this type. Is that's also what right? that's what cracks me up about this is some of these people who are pushing this and touting this, they're like the same people who are demanding these very rigorous data sets for their own for their own medical decision making. And yet it seems like they are pretty willing to jump on board with this one, where even I, who am not anywhere close an epidemiologist. I'm nowhere close to the level of someone who can analyze papers the way you two can, where I could be like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> this doesn't seem yeah, right. It's the same people who will say that like we shouldn't mask children because we haven't had randomized control trials in children and their breathing inhalation exhalation must be different than older children and adults, um, which is like obviously not true. I mean, children <laughs> are basically little adults. Sorry, Dan. Um, <laughs> for for the purposes of but, lung mechanics and oxygen exchange, yeah, I'll I'll give you that one. <laughs> yeah, the same people who were willing to jump on kind of those those retracted studies that said that there was too much carbon dioxide in masks for kids, which was totally false, um, and said we needed better evidence before we did that, are totally fine accepting this. Which, I mean, I'm not going to mince words here. I think is kind of garbage evidence. Um, and using bears is kind of the reason we have this saying in research where it's like garbage in, garbage out. If you start from trash, you're not going to get a good result. And it's not like one man's trash is another person's treasure. Um, you're, you're using garbage to try to come up with some sort of like gold standard scientific conclusion. Um, and you can't justify conclusions using unsupportable methods. And you know, I don't think any of us are saying that there's not a real signal there in that there's data that there is some risk of myocarditis. I don't, I think that's clear that there's some signal coming out that it's there, but this is not the way to analyze it. And the best analysis so far seems to be done by that ACIP. And it looks like the risk of COVID is much worse than the risk of, of the, the vaccine. So, um, Dan, you could say, I, I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, yeah, um, I, I, that's exactly how I'd interpret. And, you know, I think when you actually talk to people that see this, so when you talk to pediatric cardiologists, they feel also that the disease of, from the virus is so much worse than uh, getting the vaccine myocarditis. So I do, I want, want to put one plug in for the authors. I think it was very cool that they included the interactive database where you can actually see all the reports that they, um, you know, essentially did their analysis on. And so you can read through the cases and by doing that, one, you get a really good idea of what we're talking about in terms of how flawed some of these reports are. Like one of them says that they, they don't think the uh, vaccine was the cause. They think it was the patient had, you know, rhinoenterovirus or something, some other virus that was positive. And the clinician literally says, I think this is more likely. And they said, oh, okay, this is vaccine myocarditis. So, you know, the authors took that anecdote mm -hmm. and twisted it, which is, you know, it doesn't make any sense to go against what, you're saying that clinician said. And so, you know, incomplete stuff like fragments sometimes, you get like these run on sentences and you get these, uh, you know, all these spelling errors. And so there's a lot of just garbage, as Ryan said, that you have to sift through to find any meaningful data behind this. There is that data, there is a signal, we know this, but this is not the best uh, way to give us any sort of incidence data of how often this signal is happening. Uh, right. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, 
it's interesting. Um, and I think it's helpful to look at some of these reports. You can also see some of the kind of parent perspectives. So there are some parent reports in there where they say like, it was really scary being in an ICU and all that stuff. And like, I think that's a really important uh, humanizing element to these things. That's why, honestly, I've been reading various reports for like 10 something years, just from the, the neurology perspective to see like, oh, do we, you know, Guillain-Barre or something related to a vaccine or something. And so you read a report just to get an idea of what, what happened there. And, and yeah, it's always fascinating to me to hear that patient perspective when it's in there. Um, but at the same time, you have to know the quality of that data is it's literally an anecdote. So we're just yeah. stacking anecdotes on top of each other with incomplete data. Right. And so, right. yeah, you can't determine anything for that. There's no causation there. Yeah. And I think it is important to know that no one is trying to deny that there is a risk for myocarditis after the vaccine. Um, how much of a risk that is kind of determines to be or remains to be seen, uh, but it seems like this is pretty mild. And the reason I was harping earlier on kind of like how the COVID vaccines work is this is coding for one protein in your body that the virus has, as opposed to getting kind of like a whole body infection from this virus with multiple proteins, having the virus replicate inside of your cardiac cells and tissue um, obviously seems more concerning to me um, and so while we know that the vaccine is going to kind of replicate what the virus does to teach your immune system how to respond, um, it, it just really doesn't even make sense that the vaccine coding for one protein from a virus would be worse than having a whole body infection with a virus that codes for this protein among many others. Um, and I think in terms of kind of like next steps here in reviewing this paper, it's also important to note that none of the authors involved are in pediatrics, are in infectious disease, or are in immunology. Um, and so that to me is also concerning when I see people publishing way outside of their depth of experience. Um, it kind of suggests bias, and I, I'm not here to imply that these authors have bias, um, but, but there's a reason that they wanted to publish uh, kind of outside of their own areas and that that is also concerning in scientific research but what i would also like to hear a lot more about is like dan said there's a bunch of cases in this data set that they published to their credit um, that they've made available that are just not clearly not myocarditis we have a, a gold standard for diagnosing myocarditis and i'm not a cardiologist I'm not a pediatric cardiologist um, but even i know that searching for a troponin which is a, a cardiac enzyme in a database is, is not the diagnosis for myocarditis. I see people every day who have elevated troponin levels who do not have myocarditis. Um, how many cases did you find, Dan, that weren't very obviously? So I, found, I found seven that were obviously not meeting criteria. There were more than that. I mean, I probably got up to like 15 where there was like, if I included the ones that are a little more gray and you, know, you could make an argument one way or the other. But I thought those seven that I put in the blog post were very clearly just like, glaringly obvious, incorrect uh, cases. There was one patient that was COVID PCR positive. So you have no idea, you know, when right. they got the infection recently, obviously, because it was a PCR. Uh, and so, yeah, in relation to the vaccine dose, we're not sure. And, and most of these cases even say things like further investigation pending. And so, yeah, we can't really say that's, an, and I think that's the other advantage that the CDC has is when they confirm these cases, they do more investigation to actually get more records and, and investigate further. It's not just that one screen that we can see, which has oftentimes very minimal information. Yeah, you you also noted a case that they put in there where the the person also had a rhinovirus, enterovirus positive PCR. That could have been a contributing factor. Another patient with an EBV positive PCR, that could have been also an issue. And that's probably cases that I'm assuming the the ACIP, when they first looked at this data, probably excluded. Um, and they also had that raw data to, to help them with it. So they, they probably did a better job with the data too. So yeah, um, exactly. So we've alluded to it a couple of times. Uh, let's, let's get the plugs in right now. Tell us about the blog, uh, where people can read it, and then uh, tell us where people can find you, doctor. So uh, Science-Based Medicine is a really awesome blog that I've been reading for 10 plus years now, uh, helped me a lot uh, in terms of you know, learning, not just about the anti-vaccine movement and things like that, but also learning about bears, learning about 
um, how to interpret the medical literature. And so, yeah, I highly recommend it. So Dr. Gorski also has like a companion piece where he talks about the same VARES study. And then you can also find my piece there as a guest contributor. And then you can also find me on Twitter. I spend probably too much time on Twitter. Uh, my handle is dfriedman7. Uh, so I'm always happy to take vaccine questions, even though I think the other kind of Ryan's point, I would not say that I'm a vaccine expert. This is a, more of a hobby for me. I find it very interesting. Um, and looking at VAERS reports for years, again, more of a hobby than anything else, I would not feel qualified to write this kind of paper. And so the fact that these people who have never done any work like this before just kind of, you know, sashayed into this, it's just like really. <laughs> All right. So. Let's close up here. Ryan, give us your plugs, man. I, I need everyone to follow you. <laughs> um, I'm mostly just on Twitter at Ryan Marino, one word. And absolutely both these guys should be followed on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, they're a reason in and of itself to get on Twitter. Um, before I let you guys go, there's something new I've been doing just because so many of our episodes end on a downer note in general. I'm trying to find ways to make that less so. So one thing I'm going to ask you guys to do, you can take a minute to think about this, is I want you to give me one piece of art, one film, one book, one piece of music, album, something that you've been listening to or reading or enjoying recently that you might recommend to our listeners. I can start. I'll let you guys think about it a little bit, but I've, uh, I'm re-watching season two of The Boys. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen the show. It's on Amazon. I'm waiting for season three to come out. So I'm rewatching season two. And it's a superhero show, but in the smartest possible way you could have a superhero show. Because it's really about capitalism. It's about business. And it's amazing. It's so well written. It's so well acted. If you can get past Carl Urban's kind of bad British accent. It's an awesome show. I highly recommend it. That's my plug for my recommendation uh, for the day. Do you guys have any? I, I got one. Um, I just started listening to How Did This Get Made? It's podcasts. Uh, I, like, I'm very intermittent with podcasts. I'm about to start listening to The House of Pot, obviously, a lot more. Uh, a lot more. Did... You have listened before, oh, yes, right? Yes, okay. okay. Yeah. I've, I've, I've listened to, there's certain episodes I've actually listened to multiple times. But I, it's not like podcasting is not a regular thing that I do. Mm -hmm. uh, the, really, the only time I do is on long drives. I don't know why that is, but that's like sure, that's the time sure. that I get into podcast zone. Yeah. And so, like, I'll stack up some podcasts for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how did this get made? People have been telling me about it for years. I've been very resistant. I don't know why. Fantastic. And awesome so, what, show. oh, God, it's so good. So, we've been watching the movies that they like you know going through oh like jesus the, just the worst movies you could possibly think we watched twilight right and twilight like, it was just so entertainingly bad um and so <laughs> that's awesome man that's great um i uh at the show basically the premise of the show for people who haven't heard it is there are these funny uh there's john what's his name the what um, Jason Manzukis he's, he's and John from the league. And then, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Shears. Yeah, Paul Shear. Paul Shear and Jason Manzukis and um, I forget the third host. Uh, she's uh, great Jean too. Diane Raphael. Yes, married to Paul Shear, which is very. That's right. They that. actually, I you know who likes the show is Michael Weber. He's a screenwriter for Five Hundred Days of Summer, and he was a previous guest. And he told me about the show. And it's a really, it really is awesome. They go over these awful movies. And they analyze it in a really fun way. It's it's not really hating on bad movies. It's kind of just like looking at it from a fun sort of lens. And I really appreciate that. I'm with you on that one. Um, Ryan, what what do you think? What, what, oh, what do you got? I can never think of anything on the spot. So I'm just going to go with like a recent thing. I went to, this was outdoors, by the way, a outdoor distanced concert for um, Alanis Morissette's 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pill. And wow. I mean, if you're not listening to Jagged Little Pill, like there's no no more time to be like e emo and angsty than during this <laughs> pandemic. Do you feel like her whole ironic thing about them not being ironic at all really was the ironic part of the song and she meant that? Or do you think that's sort of just like trying to go back in time and, and make it make some sense? Well, in this 25 paragraph essay, I will get to the bottom of that. No, but... um. Yeah, I mean, I think 
none none of the stuff is ironic so that's the irony and maybe it was all a mistake but the fact that we're still talking about it 25 years later maybe that's the real irony yeah there you go there you have it folks okay uh thank you to nadim for help with production if you haven't already please follow us at the house of pod um please subscribe to us uh, and rate review at itunes if you have thoughts about what you heard today please share them with us thank you both so much i really appreciate both your time ryan it's always good to see you dan great to meet you thanks for coming on the show okay but you guys uh dan i apologize uh, for my introductions this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.